Well, hello there, and welcome to my podcast. You know, just about every day I meet interesting people, ranging from musicians to actors to entrepreneurs and adventurers and all kinds of folks. So I decided to start this podcast to share their stories with you. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. <clears throat> Ten friends. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of On Jared, brought to you by the good people and delicious coffee beans of Kicking Horse Coffee. In the wake of Prince's abrupt death and all of the great musicians we've lost this year, including Merle Haggard, Glenn Fry, David Bowie, Fife Dog, uh, Maurice White, Paul Kantner, and Lonnie Mack, I keep finding myself in a familiar trap, which is sharing a thought or two on social media and then queuing up some of the recently departed's music. And I'm clearly not alone in this, as just about everyone I know has something to say about these artists, friends who have played with them, friends who have shared chance encounters with them, or just music fans who are lamenting their passing. And I I was feeling guilty, almost like I was cheapening these artists by just playing the records and going back to my regularly scheduled programming a few days later. But after I thought about it a little more, I realized that I think it's okay. A lot of these artists that have passed away this year and the great music that I've loved throughout my life... They occupy this space, not just in my music collection, but in my memories, and in some cases, deep inside my being. And when we lose people that we love, friends and family, isn't it often the case that a song is the only thing that can bring their memory back to life? I have situations like that where I hear a song and it would be physically impossible not to think of someone specific. I think that's partly what makes these musical losses feel so heavy. While their songs awaken memories and emotions within us, they too are now memories themselves, and and Prince was way too young to be a memory. So I guess the moral of those ramblings is don't delay, folks. If there's an artist you want to see, go do it. I've been taking my own advice on that lately, and I'm glad I have been. And on that note, my guest today is jazz bassist and gentleman extraordinaire Christian McBride. If you know Christian's music, you have good taste. Mazel. If you don't, you should do yourself a favor and give it a listen. Christian is a five-time Grammy Award winner who's recorded on more than 300 albums and is widely considered to be one of the most accomplished and respected bassists of our generation. In his youth, Christian was a prodigy, and his contributions to the music world as an adult have not disappointed. As a jazz bassist, he's played alongside folks like Freddie Hubbard, Pat Metheny, Roy Haynes, McCoy Tyner, Chick Corea, Wynton Marsalis, and on and on. Outside of jazz, he's played with James Brown, Paul McCartney, Celine Dion, Usher, and countless others. When Sting had a chance to perform with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, he decided just to sing and not to play bass, and thus he recruited Christian. And as Sting said, I don't give up my seat in the band easily, unless it's, you know, the best. And just a few months ago, Christian was the musical director for the Smithsonian Salutes Ray Charles in performance at the White House event. Christian and his upright bass and his unmistakable smile are at center stage leading the charge throughout the entire night. And it was recently announced that Christian has accepted the role as the new artistic director for the Newport Jazz Festival. God, I am just tired saying all those things. He's a legend in his time, and I'm proud to call him a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you double bass and double vodka, a chat with Christian McBride. Mr. Christian McBride, welcome to On Jared. What's up, baby? We have Good our, to see you again. Yeah, likewise. We have our vodka beverages, there so we go. I think we are probably ready to start. Let's do it. First of all, why did you start playing bass as a kid? Because most kids like the panache of other instruments like guitar, piano, and things that you could more right. readily produce a result from. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> why bass? My dad. It's a family tradition. My father, Lee Smith, is a bass player. My great uncle, Howard Cooper, is also a bass player. So I didn't really have much choice in that, <laughs> you know. 
Uh, I never, well, I did briefly become interested in the trombone, but um, that lasted all of like 15 minutes. And so, uh, yeah, it's been all bass all the time. Did you grow up hearing a lot of bass? Yeah, absolutely. Seeing it, um, hearing it? You know, although my parents uh, weren't together, I saw my dad enough that I really had some great experiences with live music as a very, very young kid. Um, between my dad and my uncle, my mother's brother, who was a promotions man for WHAT Radio in Philly, I mean, I was going to live shows probably every other week. Wow. You know, seeing a little bit of everybody. I saw gospel shows. I saw R&B shows, some Latin jazz shows. Uh, I saw the Philadelphia Orchestra for the first time when I was 12. So uh, there was always some good music I was being exposed to on top of seeing my dad play. Right. Did you feel like you're, as a kid, you knew? Was that, did you know that was going to be your path? Uh, I had a feeling it would be something involved in music. I didn't know if it would be as a musician or as a DJ or as a road manager or, or what. But um, because that's the only thing I was really around. You know, I mean, other than sports, you know, um, I also went to a lot of baseball games, a lot of basketball games. Uh, growing up in Philly when I grew up, it, I got I got lucky because I grew up during the Dr. J era of the 76ers. Right. You know, the Mike Schmidt, Steve Carlton era of the Phillies, the Bobby Clark, Bill Barber era of the Flyers, you know, and the uh, Ron Jaworski, the uh, uh, Wilbur Montgomery, Howard <laughs> Carmichael era of the Eagles. So all four of our teams were great. And, of course, Philadelphia's also a great boxing town. You know, Joe yeah. Frazier's from Philly. Ike Williams is from Philly. George Benton's from Philly. Meldrick Taylor. all Bernard Hopkins. All these great fighters are from Philly. So, uh, I, But I knew I didn't want to do that. <laughs> boxing is not my thing. Uh, although I have trained with a boxer, but that was just to kind of get my body in some sort of half-ass shape, <laughs> you know, not so I can get hit and hit, you know. Right. Uh, the only sport I was ever good at was uh, football. I played a lot of street football coming up, and I also thought I wanted to play pro football. So uh, if I wasn't going to play pro football, then I would be a musician. But I think <laughs> I always knew that music would probably win out. Yeah. And by the time you went to high school, you were in high school with a lot of heavy musicians, right? right? Early on. That's right. The, the, the Roots, Quest uh -huh. was there. That's uh -huh. where you guys first met and ended up doing... Philadelphia That's where experiment we first met. later on? Yeah, well, before we knew it was the Philadelphia experiment, <laughs> right. Uh, well, even when I was in middle school, I met Joey DeFrancesco. Joey and I played in the after-school youth ensemble. And Joey, Joey was already a huge superstar. You know, he was... When people ask me now about Joey Alexander, oh, this kid, you know, he's only 12 years old. Have you ever heard anything like that? And I have to be honest, I say, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I grew up with a kid named Joey DeFrancesco who was just burning all over the, the B3 and the piano at age nine, you know. Right. So once we got to high school, you know, we were already tight partners. You know, we were like Batman and Robin, you know. Then I met a lot of musicians who aren't popular, but they were so, they were so much better than us and so inspiring. Then I met members of which would later become Boys to Men. Right. Kurt Rosenwinkel yep. was at our school. And then Amir, he was going to a private high school, and he transferred to our high school in, I believe, his sophomore year. And uh, we became 
tight partners for, see, Joey and I were, were jazz partners. Joey wasn't necessarily a, a funk dude, but Amir yeah. Questlove, he was a funk dude even back then, you know, obviously because of his dad, you know, yeah. with the, uh, the doo-wop the lineage, and then later on getting into the funk thing. So I, we were best friends for two separate things. So I would hang with Joey talking jazz, and I would hang with Amir talking funk, <laughs> specifically James Brown. And so I was sort of like the liaison between him and Joey, yeah. you know. Um, and then Kurt comes, and he's he's not on either person's wavelength. You know, he's coming from Mahavishnu Orchestra and, you know, a lot of prog rock, you know. Huh. And so we were like, you know, wh- who's this dude? What's he, what's he talking about? And then he was also a very good piano player. I Actually, when we were in high school, I thought guitar was Kurt's second instrument because he was always on the piano. And then Tyreek Black thought, when we were in high school, he was a art major. I didn't even know he rapped. <laughs> and then uh, after school one day, he co- he comes down to the music room, and Amir is like, "Hey man, uh, play with us for, on, on something, man." I said, "Play with who?" He said, "With me and, and Tyreek." I was like, "What's Tyreek gonna do? He plays an instrument?" He said, "No, he's a rapper." I'm like what? <laughs> And so uh, Amir always is very kind of him. He always says, I'm the first root. <laughs> you know, because that's, it, it, to him, that's when the roots actually first started. That one jam session we had Ab in the school. basement uh, at, our, at our high school. That's amazing. Yep. Wow. So you were surrounded, really, by it, and by it's such a rich... I was absolutely surrounded by great yeah. musicians, my age my father's age and my great uncle's age right. you know and then of course being in Philadelphia is such a great music city yeah you know no matter where you went you had great musicians from some some sort of genre you know I was just talking to uh, I interviewed Lloyd Price ooh that's and, the man man was he I that's mean, the personality <laughs> he's I mean his stories are crazy oh but, I bet you know you're I would love to talk to him man I want to talk to him about Harold Logan it, well, well why don't we we'll call him after this he's like 20 minutes away from here no kidding <laughs> yeah man he's 82 years old he rolled up to my house in a Hummer <laughs> he came out here and told me the most incredible stories but the reason I mentioned in the first place is because he was living in Philadelphia with, and Joe Frazier was uh, living in the same apartment building. Wow! And so a lot of these guys around that time just it mimics what you're saying. Yeah. Music, sports, and right. the heyday of both of those yep. things with yep. so many incredible people coming up yep. at that time. So I, yeah, we'll what, talk. What a legend! We, yeah, we could talk Huge more about fan Lloyd. He is. Oh, it's crazy, man. His his stories. He's oh, a, yeah. he's the best. <laughs> uh, well, so uh, you continue with music, and you got yourself into Juilliard. Yes. Uh, at Juilliard, you hooked up with Freddie Hubbard. That was after Juilliard. That was after. That was part of the reason why I didn't go back to Juilliard for my second year. So you didn't? Did you not? You didn't finish there? No. No, but you started there. Yeah. And then you got plucked out. I started doing gigs around New York like two weeks after school started. Did you felt like you had learned enough in school, and now the second part that you needed to do was get that sort of practical application? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, number one, I knew that when I moved to New York to go to Juilliard, I was 17 years old. I knew I was good, but I certainly knew that I had 500 oceans worth of information to still learn. But I think that for my age, I was doing okay. You know, my goal was to play with some guys in New York 
maybe some guys my age, a little slightly older, just so I can kind of get my feet wet. You know, what's new? What's the New York scene like compared to Philly? You know, and the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from Bobby Watson. So I always tell people, you know, it's like uh, I never got to go to Triple A. I went right to the Yankees. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and you figure it out there. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. And, um, and being with those guys is going to make you five times better. Yeah. Five yeah. times as fast, right? And see, one one thing that I always tell young musicians is they they see my career on paper, and, you know, they they think it's been all sugar and roses. But my first gig with Bobby was not pleasant. I was every bit the. Uh, Were you seventeen when you I went was out 17. with Bobby? Good yep. lord! How did you hook up with him in the first place? Sorry to interrupt you. But no, it's cool. Bobby, for whatever reasons, he spent a lot of time in Philly. He had a. a he had a thing for Philadelphia musicians. He, he was always coming to Philly and kind of recruiting guys to do gigs with him. So I met Bobby numerous times while I was in high school. So he knew about me and Joey. You know, we were working around town. And uh, so Bobby, he knew about me. And he knew I was very serious. He knew that I wanted to come to New York and learn from the very, very best. He knew I wasn't some kid who wanted to kind of ride on my, you know, teen popularity. You know, right. I really wanted to get my hands dirty and get my butt kicked. And uh, he did that and more. I mean, it wasn't that first gig, man. Um, first of all, James Williams played piano. Victor Lewis played drums. Now, literally three weeks before that, I was sitting in my bedroom in Philly going, man, wouldn't it be great to play with these guys one day? You know, I'm listening to them on records. Right. You know, with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Victor Lewis with Woody Shaw and uh, all these people. So next thing I know, you know, Bobby said, hey, I got a gig this weekend. I want you to play with me. And... Uh, you know, my my hands are sweating. I'm scared to death. You know, I knew a lot of Bobby's music, but I thought, you know, he inevitably will call something that I don't know. Right. And what's that going to be like? Right. And, and uh, if the tunes go in a different direction, how can you hang I, with that? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I was I was scared to death. And so we had a rehearsal that day, and uh, the rehearsal went great. And I thought, wow, this is going to be okay. All right, I think I'm I think I'm going to survive. Somewhere between rehearsal and the gig, I I think I know what happened, but I'm not going to say it on your podcast. <laughs> uh, Bobby just got like his mood changed, so we were on stage, and I mean the first tune, the first song. He's turning around. He's you know, like, come on man, what are you doing? Come on man, get with it. And like, oh god, what, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> He's like, come on, man, stop bullshitting. Like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And, and Victor's co-signing him. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah, come on, Christian, come on. Was he just was he messing with you? Was I, Victor messing with you? Or I, was he just to this very day, I don't know. Well, like I like I said, I I do think I know, but I'm I'm not yeah. gonna say. So like Bobby's like yelling at me the whole set. The yeah. whole set. That's you enough. Know. It feels like it must have been enough to scare you away. He's like in my ear. He's like, come on, man. You're in New York now, man. You're not playing with them. You know, you ain't in the minor leagues no more. You up here with us. So act like it. You know, it's like. Jesus. And man, I'm trying not to cry on stage, man. You know, it's just like, man, my first gig in New York. And I'm obviously I'm not doing well, you right. know. And thank God for James Williams. Because James, he just had a heart of gold. So I'm looking at James. And James is mouthing at me. He's like. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we get on the we get on the break on the intermission, and the minute we go in the dress room, Bobby 
And Victor just gang up on me, man. He said, man, why are you dragging? Am I dragging? He said, yeah, you dragging, man. You got to play on top. You a bass player, man. You can't be slogging behind the beat like that. You didn't say that at rehearsal. Because <laughs> you know, we had a full rehearsal. Right, and everything and it was, was fine. fine then. You know? And so uh, I'm looking at James. You know, James, like, you know, he pats me, quietly pats me on the back. He's like, just just keep doing what you're doing. You'll be all right. I'm like, why are they yelling at me? Yeah. You know, so uh, <laughs> I go home that night, you know, completely confused. You know, like, man, rehearsal was fine. And then two hours later, I'm dragging. Like, what's wrong? You know, so uh, I went through that with Bobby's band for about a year. Wow. You night know? in and night out with that same kind of thing? Yep. But he kept you on. He kept me on. So that yep. must have said something to you. It must have said something. Yeah, he's maybe exactly. more him, not as much you. And so I remember he, he and Victor Lewis both said, uh, you know, this whole thing about bass players playing on top of the beat. New York jazz players play on top of the beat. You know, don't drag. Now, I never thought I dragged, you know, because I like funk. And in funk, you got to be like right, right in the pocket, right. you know. So I thought whatever works... You know, whatever makes you dance in funk should make you dance in jazz. So I said, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. So I completely changed my whole style of playing. Man, I started playing, like, really rushed. You know, like, so if a guy counted the tempo off here, I would play, like, here. Wow. You know, uh, because that's what they made it sound like I was supposed to do. And um, thank God for Kenny Washington. Kenny Washington single-handedly changed my playing to the next level about a year and a half you know so that was September 89 when I played my first gig with Bobby so this was probably in the fall of 90 I'm playing a gig with Donald Harrison Brian Lynch Dave Hazeltine and Kenny Washington and Kenny is another guy who I loved on records with Mulgrew Miller and Betty Carter and Johnny Griffin and all these people so we're playing and I'm playing real rushed you know like Victor and Bobby (laughs) taught me you know they talk about playing on top of the beat, you know, New York jazz on top of the beat. And Kenny's just making these faces at me on you know, the whole set, like, you know. And then I'm, I'm looking at him smiling, like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm playing on top, you know. <laughs> and Kenny's just grimacing the whole time. And he starts stomping on his hi-hat extra loud, you know. Here's the time. You right, know? right. <laughs> so why is he getting so upset? <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> We get on a break, and uh, I said, Mr. Washington, it's such an honor to play with you. He, 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 like, completely disregarded what I just said. He says, man, why are you rushing so bad? <laughs> I said, I, 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 thought, uh, I thought that's how drummers like bass players to play. And he went, what? I said, yeah, I mean, I was told that bass players are supposed to play on top of the beat. You know, like, like just maybe a little bit ahead of the drummer. Kenny got in my face and he said, who the hell told you that? <laughs> well, was that a moment for you? Man. Like just a cathartic, like, you know what? Man, I cannot tell you the relief right. that went through my body when he said that. He said, man, and he brought up an example. He said, man, you a big James Brown fan. Does it sound like Bootsy is ahead of the drums? Right. They playing right together in the pocket. Listen to Paul Chambers and Philly Joe Jones, Ron Carter and Tony Williams. They're playing together. You know, the bass ain't ahead of the drums. They're right in the middle of the beat together. 
He said, now, when we go out there for the second set, I want you to play right in the middle. And was that the first set that you felt like you played like you? The yes, absolutely. Because I went back to playing the way I played at the rehearsal with Bobby. Right. And, uh, you know, it took 16, 17 months for somebody to say, you're okay. And, man, Kenny, especially knowing like I know him now, he doesn't do this. So when we start playing for the second set, he's like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You know. <laughs> and uh, that was, man, yeah, cathartic is, is the word. I mean, I was just, I went home like, oh, my God. Now, I play with Bobby the next week. So I get to see if uh, this new discovery will apply to Bobby's band. We start playing. Nobody says anything. Call the next song. Nobody saying nothing. <laughs> it's like, okay. We get on the break. Everybody's talking and, you know, hey, Bobby, uh, was was that okay? You know, what are you talking about? Was what okay? I was like, nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do, do you think that he didn't know what he had done to you psychologically for that year? No. Yeah. I Till this day, I don't think he knows. Right. You know? Because I'm so grateful for him. I mean, that was my introduction to the New York scene. Because all these older guys were like, oh, who's this young boy playing with Bobby Watson? You know, And that led to exactly. other big opportunities. Exactly. Right? Yep. I, was, uh, I was listening to this Miles interview the other day. And he was saying something to the effect that he, he considered albums to be advertisements. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, it was just a way to advertise the live show, and he felt like maybe the record was a little antiseptic, a little right. prescripted. Right. Uh, and that the live show was kind of the real McCoy. Do you see it that way? You know, with records, particularly with jazz records, jazz records are they're they are squarely a snapshot of what happened at that moment. It can never happen again. Whatever you hear on the recording, I. I don't even know if it could set you up for the live gig. You know what I mean? You think they're just separate? um, I mean, if the same band that you hear on the record, you're going to hear them live, then yes, maybe that would be a direct link. But uh, that's why I think the so-called genre of jazz is so beautiful, because whatever you felt at that moment, that's what it is. You're not going to feel that. You never felt that before that moment you're not going to feel that way after that moment. So artistically speaking, that's exactly what my feelings were at that particular time. You're executing, it's that intention. That's right, right. that's right. And so it doesn't feel like, you don't feel like you need to judge it one way or another. It's just that's what... Exactly. That's what that was at that particular time. Whereas, you know, popular records, you know, pop records are more constructed for a certain kind of thing. You know what I mean? Right. They don't necessarily have to be constructed that I think any kind of music can be an example or a testament to that person at that particular time but the thing about jazz is that when you're improvising it, it's kind of antithetical to go back and say okay I want to overdub it of course let me fix that yep. you know um so any mistakes what, if you guys are in a live room mistakes they stay on exactly it's just yeah that's just part of the process yeah. you know <laughs> and like you know, I know a lot of older jazz musicians, well, not just older musicians, but particularly somebody like Thelonious Monk, and Miles was the same way. Even with mistakes, if you couldn't get it after the second take, it's just going to go on the record with mistakes. Because they realize that once you kind of repeat it more, 
you start to lose the feeling. Right. You know, yeah, the notes are tighter and you get it more correct, quote unquote, but the feeling is gone. Right. You know, it now starts to feel a little, like like you said, antiseptic. Yeah. Whereas like the first and second take, you actually feel the excitement of, wow, what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, right. Right? this is a cool new song we're playing, you know, that you can feel the freshness, you know. So, uh, this is the great Clint Eastwood documentary that he did on Thelonious Monk. They interviewed Charlie Rouse. And Charlie Rouse says, yeah, you know, Thelonious was one of those guys, if, if you play the song completely wrong, but the feeling was there, he'll go with that as opposed to having the notes perfectly correct, right. but there's no feeling. Right. You know? Yeah. And in your mind, is it is it more authentic, is it more real if the music that you're playing is closer to the improvisational side of that spectrum. I so, so if like if like the recorded materials are on the right and then improv is on the left, where in that spectrum is comfortable? Well, I- improvisation is composition sped up. When you're improvising, you're you're composing, but at a much greater, quicker pace than if you're just sitting down on a guitar or a piano and say, "Okay, let me think up some things and write them down." So when you're recording that. I mean, I think it's right in the middle with the, the, that satisfactory balance, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's one reason why I love James Brown's music so much. Because James Brown's music is some of the only popular music where even he leaves his own mistakes in there. I mean, it's obvious to tell on so many James Brown records. He's freestyling. You know, the band right. is just vamping. And he's just making stuff up on the fly. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Right. But he leaves it on there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I like the fact that even James Brown, who was this tremendously successful popular music artist, thought the artistic process is more important than the finished product. Right. You know? So it would be closer to the... It's going to skew left a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I sort of see you out in front of the jazz movement, continuing the tradition of a lot of the guys that, that we all grew up mm-hmm. listening to. And with you carrying that torch, I think, in a lot of ways, do you feel like you have a responsibility to be an ambassador for that? Or is it okay to kind of push your musical limits in other genres in addition to jazz? Well, I mean, you got to do what your heart tells you to do as a musician. I don't think you should put tradition or some sort of rules ahead of your own artistic expression. If you're honestly feeling something, you got to get it out. Follow that. Right. You know, I think it's, a, it's, it's individual cases like how much a person is tied to a tradition. And there are many. There are many musicians that say, okay, well, Bob Dylan didn't do it like that, so I'm not going to do it like that. Monk didn't do it that way. I'm not going to do it that way. Well, Miles did this, so I'm going to do that. Right. You know? I think it's important not to get lost in tradition or to purposely shun tradition for the sake of being fresh. And I, I think that's a that, that's a, a very naive mistake that a lot of jazz musicians make. They, they well, I'm not going to listen to any old records because I don't want to subconsciously start getting tied to that and I'm going to start wanting to play that. You know, I'm going to shun any sort of tradition because I want to keep my thing fresh. Well, I'm not so much a fan of fresh as I am honesty and something that really feels good. I don't want to figure out that you're thinking hard. You know, right. when I hear music, 
And I think that's a problem with jazz sometimes. We shoot ourselves in the foot because we think too hard. We're trying to out-clever ourselves. Uh, let me purposely go against what I'm feeling for the sake of being fresh right. or for the sake of being creative. Artistically speaking, this is exactly where this song should go. So therefore, I'm not going there. I'm going to stay away from the obvious to challenge myself. Um, and I think that's partly why I asked that question, because yeah. it feels like, I guess part of that question is, is the jazz community supportive of musicians exploring other genres? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think the, the jazz community is as uh, protective, so to speak, of the tradition or its traditions as it may have been, say, 45 years ago when Miles Davis decided he wanted to start playing the Fillmore. You know? Right. Or when Charles Lloyd started reining in all these hippies to his performances. You know, In this day and age, I don't think anybody bats an eye. I mean, I look at somebody like Donnie McCaslin, who recorded with David Bowie, or Kamasi Washington, who's been working with Kendrick Lamar. Most people I know in the jazz were like, oh, cool, that's great. You know, yeah. when I started working with Sting, it was like, oh, cool, great. You know, have a great time, you know. But I do think what's, what's funny in the jazz world, artistically, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. Just don't become successful at it. <laughs> the, yeah, you like, can go, like come back, come you, back you, to you, us. You, you, can, you, can, you can go work with Kendrick Lamar. You can go work with David Bowie. You can go work with Sting. Just don't now appeal to more of them than you do to us. Right. You know. So, yeah, I always tease people. I said, you know, the absolute worst thing that can happen to you in jazz is to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're a bitter right. artist, uh, but that's feeling, I mean. feeling no love, yeah. you know, then, then you're real. Right. You know, you're keeping it real. But that's you know? what I mean. That aesthetic still feels like it's there with some of the musicians I talk to. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I suppose it's like that no matter what, you know. It's always going to be somebody. It's always going to be. I mean, I I clearly remember when Diana Krall crossed over in the late 90s. You know, she went from being this this girl singer who sang at the Hilton bar to being a household name in the pop world. And, like, uh, so many people were just like... Oh, I know a lot of singers who, who can sing like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah it's just like, why don't y'all just say congratulations, right. you know, just and support the girl. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so, you know, but but that happens. That, that's, that comes with the territory. Right. So I'm what? glad it just never kept Diana from doing what she wants to do. Yeah. And you from doing what you want to do. Yeah. I, you know, I think because of, I've spent so much time, you know, being in the family, you know, uh, playing with so many, I mean, you know, I'm a bass player, you know, so I'm always going to be playing behind someone, even in my own band, you know, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm still the support instrument, you know, so um, my ties in the in the community, you know, in the family, so to speak, are so strong, I think most people, at least I would like to think this, that most people know that I'm always part of the jazz family, no matter what, right. you know, so even when I was playing with Sting, the minute I would get off the road with Sting, I'd go down to the Village Vanguard and hang out. You know, I'd, I'd go somewhere and hear my friends play and go sit in and go jam, you know. Right. So, like, you know, when are you going to buy your house up on the hill? And, you know, 
buy your two cars and you know get your private. I was like, you know, come on, now. Yeah. you know, ain't yeah. about that. You know. <laughs> what um, what challenges you the most in your music these days? It's always been a challenge for me to compose. I have not developed the discipline I think that's needed to really be as fluent with my writing as I am, say, with my playing or my improvising. I look at somebody like Chick Corea. I've been so honored to have worked with him over the last 20 years. I went on the road with him for the first time in 1996. And to be around him all the time, and Pat Metheny is another one, those two people uh, in particular, you say, okay, Chick, um, I need a piece of music. You got one hour. He will go into a room and write two full concertos. <laughs> That's how prolific he is. He's just, all these ideas just come right out and, you know, he's just, and I admire that about him. And, I, and Pat Metheny's the same way, you know. So I was talking to Pat and I was asking him about his process, you know, about how he composes. And, uh, you know, what he said made perfect sense. I already knew what he told me, but just to hear him say it and confirm it. He says, man, you know, composing is a developed skill, just like any other skill. You sit down and you practice your lines when you're learning how to improvise, you're transcribing solos. It's the same thing with learning how to write music. You know, you just got to do it every day. Even if what you compose you think is, is not that good, you know, you just got to get into the habit of putting your ideas down right. and thinking of something new every day. You know, e even if it sucks, just get into the habit of doing that. And um, I'll tell you something else that was a relief for me, another one of those cathartic moments. My biggest compositional hero is Wayne Shorter. So uh, in, in 1997, I got to uh, work with Wayne. Wayne was developing a new band, which unfortunately never happened. Oh, man. Um, Jim Beard was playing keyboards, David Gilmore on guitar, Myself and Brian Blade on drums. Jesus. And uh, we rehearsed at his house in L.A. numerous times. And uh, we walked into the room, and there was manuscript paper all over the floor. And that was like looking at, like, the tablets, like like the Ten Commandments, <laughs> you know. So I'm looking at it, it's like, man, that's like some Wayne Shorter masterpiece nobody's ever heard. So I'm like looking at the paper like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Thank goodness iPhones weren't right. around back then. So I'd take a picture of everything on the floor. And uh, so I'm just looking at this music like, oh, my God, this is Wayne Shorter working on this. And I'm thinking, well, I'm sure Wayne's process for composing is unlike anyone else's just because Wayne is one of those kind of guys that every, I, I think maybe every recorded song of his has made a deep impact on the jazz world. You know, all the, all the music he wrote with Weather Report, for Miles Davis, for his own albums, something about a Wayne tune makes the whole jazz community go, ooh, right. we got to hear that. We know it must be, must be killing, you know. So um, Wayne's sitting at the piano, and he's got this manuscript paper there, and I felt so lucky, and uh, I'm sitting there watching him. I mean, I'm watching him like a hawk. I'm just... Wayne's at the piano writing music. This is deep. You know, all the other guys were in the kitchen, you know, getting some food or whatever. I'm just sitting there staring at Wayne. And uh, he's working on this piece. And all of a sudden, this was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. He gets stuck. He's, he's writing. He, he gets to this passage. And he's 
he he repeats it. He keeps he can't get past this part, and uh, he sees me staring at him. He says, uh, "Hey, Christian, um, what would you do here?" <laughs> and when you, you you're not serious, sorry, I, I I'm not helping you. You know, no, I'm <laughs> I'm woefully underskilled to you know to help you with this. And he says, no, 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 see, see, look. So he plays this this figure he keeps repeating. He says, uh, you know, what chord would you put with that? You know, I'm too scared. I, I, I just can't, I can't do it. So I went, I, I don't know. Uh, I go over to the piano, uh, you know, I just play some old dumb chord. I say, you know, well, what, what do you think of this? You know, and Wayne is, you know, hmm, uh, maybe not. so he said play something else so (laughs) I come up with another chord he's like alright that's that's a little better but I'm looking for more of a I remember the word he used I'm looking for a forlorn kind of sound but once we got over that moment I just remember thinking it's like wow even Wayne Shorter gets stuck right the greatest living jazz composer has a moment where he has to stop and figure it out. So that made me feel a little better, you know. That by no stretch gives me the right to be able to just sit on the piano just a couple of times a year and try to bang out my little jive tunes <laughs> and get and feel good about getting stuck because we ain't sure to get stuck because I'm sure he sat on that piano much more consistently than I have. But uh, But also his willingness to... To bring you into that process. Yeah. I mean, that was that was deep. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you want to take your music? I don't know. Like I said, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to eventually... I will say I'm, I'm better than I was, say, 15 years ago at developing the discipline to sit down and write more often. But... Um, I don't know. I don't really have a uh, goal of where I want to take my music. You know, I'll just follow my heart. Right, there's no end game. Wherever it goes, it goes, you know? Yeah. And with, with whoever and whatever. You know, as long as I can keep playing with the best musicians out here in the world, that's the goal, to be able to keep playing with musicians who are going to challenge me and help me discover new things and uh, keep me excited. And if that you ended know? up being an electric bass somewhere else? So be it. Yeah. I'm actually, in uh, later this year, I'm actually going into the studio to make a new electric project. I can't wait, man. Can we talk about who's going to be on I'm, that project? I'm itching. Yeah, well, I have this experimental band. It's called A Christian McBride Situation. And uh, it has two DJs. Uh, DJ Logic. I know Logic. And yeah, I'm, yeah, we all <laughs> love Logic. Logic's the man. So Logic, uh, Jahi Sundance are, are both spinning turntables. Uh, Patrice Russian, the great Patrice Russian, plays keyboards. Uh, Allison Williams, who we we call the first lady of Def Jam, um, <laughs> she was one of the original signees in the '80s. And uh, Ron Blake on saxophone, and me playing electric and, and, and acoustic as well. So it's like a you know experimental DJ dub electro you know so house kind of thing. So in you fact, know. it's a real situation. Big, <laughs> yeah. big time, big time. And when are you working on that? November. And you're doing a full record? Yep. And who is composing for that? You are. Yours truly. Yeah. Yep. One thing that's 
a challenge with this band. That's that's why partially that's why we call it a Christian McBride situation because since there are no drums, one of the DJs acts as the drummer. Right. So be it Logic or Jahi, you know they'll put on a, a record. They'll they'll spin a record with a beat, and we play to that. And they'll mix in some some sounds in the middle, all that. Yep. And of course, at some point, that record's going to end. <laughs> we don't know when that's going to end. So they kind of dictate where the music is going. And if you can't be looking at the drummer, yeah, uh, to be that's right. Right. If you can't look at him to communicate with him, to watch him, to hear him, that's right. You, how do you figure out where you are? It's fun, man, because like <laughs> we've been on some gigs where the record will end. And we'll be in the middle of a groove, and sometimes we'll keep going without the beat, or sometimes we'll like abruptly go to like uh, you know what the Grateful Dead would call space, yep. you know, <laughs> and it just goes into that, and the next groove starts, and we stay in space for a while, and then we eventually join in with that. So it always is morphing into yeah. something. Now the the thing about this band is when it first started. I had a very ambitious idea that that band was going to be completely 100% improvisational. I said, I don't want any songs. Let's just go out on stage and whatever happens, happens. Just as a challenge. Yep. Now, the thing with that is, the moments when it's happening, it's not bad. But when it's not happening, (laughs) it's really not happening. (laughs) We played the Hollywood Bowl. This was one of those gigs. I haven't had many of these, but... This was probably the best example. First of all, I didn't know that we were doing a double bill with the Count Basie Orchestra. Not the band that I would want to have on a double bill, you know. With this project. With this this project. You know, all these blue hairs in the audience, you know, waiting to hear the Count Basie band. I was like, here we come with our, you know. With logic. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not, not Not the right crowd for this. And, you know, like I said, it's completely improvisational. So we go out there and we're playing in front of, you know, 12,000, 13,000 people. And the ebbs and the flows, once it started kind of getting down here, when we're trying to figure out what the next thing is going to be, you could just feel the dead space (laughs) (laughs) in that big, huge, cavernous place. I I just, that's one of the few times I remember being on stage like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> Somebody do something quick. Shut something. the, pull the power. Yeah. Call it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, Logic, come on, scratch, do something. Yeah. Help. <laughs> <laughs> Patrice, sing. Sing forget-me-nots, you know. And that's probably, but that's probably a good learning experience that oh, you do time. need to compose for big, that. Yeah. So after that gig, I said, you know what? Even if we do mostly improvisation, I still need to compose something. Let's we gotta, get a, a beginning and an end. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. It. We got to have something to begin with, a, yeah. a, a jump-off point, you know. And uh, we played our next couple of gigs with some actual songs, and it was, yeah, it was totally cool. We did a double bill with Maceo. That made perfect sense. That's a good bill. That that, <laughs> that made perfect sense. Yeah, I remember the ne- the, the morning after. I actually saved them because it was so funny. Uh, I got these emails from these people the next day. Uh, that was one of the worst concerts I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> from the Hollywood Bowl show? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Mr. McBride, you know, usually you do a good job. But I don't know about that show last night. You're going to have to think about this band. 
But that was probably the best email you could have gotten. Yeah, exactly. To shape it. That's right. That's right. All right, I know you got to go. You're stranded on a desert island. Yep. You got your fedora. You got your box of Monte Cristos. Yeah, well, I, I would probably have my pipe. Your pipe. Yeah. <laughs> what are the three records you're taking with you? Three. <laughs> James Brown, Live in Paris. Um, probably Weather Report, Black Market. Or, or would it be Heavy Weather? I don't know. One of those two records. Probably Black Market. Because both Alfonso Johnson and Jocko are playing bass on that album. <laughs> Um, and maybe Miles Davis. Someday my prince will come. Yeah, I think That's those a good might mix. be my three. My three. I respect it greatly. Yeah. Uh, I wish we had more time to chat. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. My pleasure, it's man. It's great just to wrap again. Uh, we'll get out of here. We'll give Lloyd Price a call, and we'll try, yeah. to, we'll try to mix it up tonight. Oh man. <laughs> That man, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Thank man. You. Appreciate oh, your time. See you, baby, you too. We'll do. We'll do some more. I'll you see will. you out there. All right. Until next time, thanks everyone for listening. Just a quick shout out to Christian McBride, Chris Carlone, and our awesome sponsor, Kicking Horse Coffee. I wake up with them every day. You should too. Thanks again, guys. Go see live music. Bye.